Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. This is Matt Russell. Today, uh, John is traveling around the world and saving lives and doing the things that John Stevens does. Um, and so uh, we have the opportunity to interview and to spend some time with Marlon Lazama. Hello, everybody. My name is Marlon Lazama. I am a poet. I am a co-founder of Iconoclast Artists. And uh, I, I came to Chapelwood with Matt Russell. And uh, I think the things that we are doing now um, are so intertwined and and. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're kind of knotted up together now mm-hmm. that uh, it seemed like that was the best move, not only, um, you know, for Matt, but also for our program and myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love the idea of coming to a place that allows us to create mm-hmm. and be creative, but also allows us to um, to share our visions with them, you know, so. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about who you are, because your your story, when I met you, um, your story is really kind of endemic of um, a majority of Houston stories, right? Yep. Uh, and as I've gotten to know you, it's both uh, typical and very untypical in, yep. in many ways. And so um, I'd love just to hear about where you're from. Yeah, um, well... I guess uh, to, just to start from the beginning, uh, my mom is from El Salvador, my dad's from Puerto Rico, and I always say that I came to Texas to become a Mexican. Um, <laughs> yeah, I came here when I was nine years old, um, and uh, Houston Houston was, uh, back in the day, uh, I moved into an area of Houston called the East End, which now they call Edo, but back in the day, <laughs> they used to call it Second Ward. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in this little neighborhood within right right next to second ward which is called magnolia which is like a little island like yeah. nobody leaves this place there's no reason to leave this place simply because everything you need is there yeah. there's the 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 panaderia where you get your bread there's a there's the place where you go get your tire tubes there's a you know it's, yeah, yeah. everything's there there's a taqueria there's everything we were lucky that we had a mom who was really she was a, a romantic uh. and she really believed in and going and exploring and seeing the world. So back in the day, she used to give us $2 each and she allowed us to get on the bus and you can go anywhere, which <laughs> is bad parenting. Come to think about <laughs> it, uh, you know, a nine-year-old should not be on the bus uh, traveling on their own. Um, you know, but back in the day, you know, that's what they did. Um, and I got to see the city. I got, I got, to, I got to just go different places. Uh, one of the best places I ever went was the Museum of Fine Arts. Huh. Um, Back in the day, I want you guys to picture the way I would dress. Uh, it was basically cut off shorts and, and chanclas and, and, you what know. What are chanclas? Sandals. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, sandals or, or chanclas, which means the weapon of every grandmother in Latin America. <laughs> yeah, so. So, so I, cut off shorts. Cut off shorts, sandals, sandals and, and whatever, whatever t-shirt was, <laughs> was, was clean, clean enough. <laughs> um, I went to the Museum of Fine Arts, man, and that, that was the first time I ever experienced art. Um, and, and I, w- I was lucky that I got there on a, on a Thursday because it was free. free. Um, I got to see Monet. I got to see Rembrandt. But then I saw Basquiat. Huh. And for some reason, that, that guy just spoke to me. Talk a little bit about who Basquiat is. Oh, man. Uh, Basquiat is, a, is an artist who came up uh, 
with uh, through Andy Warhol, but he was literally just an artist that was just free. Like New York, and, and New York, nineteen right? eighties, yeah. uh, graffiti. I mean, like this guy just—he's the kind of guy that would paint something, and you're like, "I can do that," you know, yeah. but you don't, and can't, and, 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 and can't <laughs> because you don't have the audacity that he has, right? Yeah. And this word audacity followed me my entire life because mm-hmm. I realized that I wanted to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would go back home. Um, the following year, I, I started. I started this thing called breakdancing. Please don't ask me to explain breakdancing. <laughs> I started breakdancing. <laughs> but you can go see the movies. Yeah, break there you go. One, there two, and three. You, there you go. Yeah. Um, so I started breakdancing uh, with a couple of friends of mine. And um, uh, I, I was introduced to hip-hop culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I was introduced to hip-hop music. And, and, uh, and I was introduced to breaks and funk and jazz and big bands. But also, I started having friends that were from different sides of towns, mm-hmm. different parts of towns. And what we would do is we would get together and practice, which is unheard of back in the day because you don't go to different areas, especially because the gangs were so, I mean, yeah. they, they were everywhere. They were rampant. And so you didn't wear certain colors in certain neighborhoods. And, and we, what we were doing was very, at this time now, looking back, reflecting, this was very revolutionary to Houston because nobody was doing that. Mm. especially uh, kids of color. And we, we started a crew, and, and uh, around the same time, my mom came up with this crazy punishment for me. Every time I was bad, she would make me read Pablo Neruda poetry, <laughs> which was an insane punishment. <laughs> right. right. So instead of whooping me, she would be like, you read these books and you tell me what it's about, and you read me poetry. Mm. And... Uh, by age 11, I was the most romantic kid in the world. Like you guys don't even know, but I started to like poetry. I started wow. to love it. And, uh, I started to, to, to correlate poetry with hip hop. And, uh, I stumbled a, upon a poet named Saul Williams and Saul Williams was literally, he was the Basquiat mm-hmm. of poetry to yeah. me. You know, it was this, it was this black man with dreads and, and he was, he was saying, he was sampling hip hop songs right. in his poetry. And he was just so free when he flowed. And, uh, he, he, he took this hook from, uh, from public enemy, which is a, 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 a social justice hip hop group. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, what I got come and get some, get on up hustlers of culture. And I'm like, you can, you can do that. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I didn't know you could do that because until now, all I knew about poetry was was Federico Lorca and Pablo Neruda and these men who wore berets and they had a pipe in their mouth and they were so uh, so well put together. And here's this man who's telling you like, no, just do what what you feel. And and he was talking out of his own context and his own life. And oh, yeah. so it wasn't like he was reaching into something that um, was foreign to him. It was the substance of his own experience. Oh yeah. And, it, and, and I didn't know that you can, I didn't know it was rom- I didn't know that there was romantic aspects of my life mm. because mm. to me it was just struggle. Yeah. And to me it was just, it was survival. When you're a young immigrant, uh, it's not, there's no romantic aspects of your life. Right. It's just about survival and camouflage. Uh, my mother sat me and my three brothers down, my two brothers down uh, in the table, and she told us, you have to learn English as fast as possible. That is your number one thing. Yeah. 
And my students, the students that I work now, have heard that, have heard that request and speech from their from parents. From their parents. You've and got they to. forget Spanish or mm. they forget their second language or their third language yes. sometimes. And uh, it's, it's this idea of in order for us to survive here, you have to forget who you are. Mm. And so this poet like spoke to me so much, but um, I, I, I really, I, I was just like, maybe it's only one person. And through Saul Williams, I, I started listening to James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And all of this when I was like 14 years old, by the way. I was, I was getting really <laughs> educated. I was being educated by, by just word of mouth. And these hip-hop, these older hip-hop guys that were in my group that were basically saying, oh, you like that guy? Well, listen to this guy. Mm. You're like, this guy, listen to that guy. And, and this was the, this was my, my education was forming this way. So every time I would go to school, it would really clash with the things that I was learning outside of school because James Baldwin was really educating me. It challenged everything that was safe and it challenged everything that, that I wanted, you know, it challenged everything that my mom wanted for us. Mm. And, uh, where do you go from that? And I remember having a conversation with my mom where I was just like, um, I think I want to, I want to see the world. And the, my mom did the coolest response ever from a, a, a single immigrant parent who didn't speak English. She was like, you can do it, mijo. Wow. Why not? Wow. That was her response. Now she didn't have a, a plan for me. <laughs> uh, but permission. But permission, right? Like, like she, she, she was like, why not? You know, I knew what my life was going to look like. I was going to get a job and get a house and pay rent. And uh, which, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, I just felt like there, there was so much more. Um, we got really good at breaking. We got really Your crew. good. Yeah, my crew, my crew. Uh, what's, the, what's the crew's name? My crew's name is Havoc Coro. And uh, we got really good. We got invited to France. Wow. And I remember... How old were you? I was okay. 16 years old when I first went to 16 France. 16 years 16. old. Did you have to get permission? No, from your mom I went with a note. We went with a note. <laughs> and it said, I'm allowing my, my <laughs> child to go to France. And back in it, this was before 9-11. So yeah, we went to, we went to France and, 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 wow. and they paid us $500 each. Wow. Which is a fortune in the 90s, right? Uh, I was like, oh my God, I'm getting to do what I love. And you're paying me. Mm. Uh, we started traveling more and more and more. Uh, the State Department had heard about us, and they asked our group, "Hey, can you guys do some programming that can actually work with communities in in uh, third world countries?" Mm. And we're like, "Oh my gosh, that's no, that's too much. Like, we can't do that." And they're like, "We'll pay you five thousand dollars." I'm like, "Yes, we can do we that. <laughs> you should start with the five thousand dollars before you." And then the request. And then the request. Um, can, can I say this as I've gotten to know you? Um, it's easy for me to kind of skip over this part of your history, but here you are, a 14 to 16-year-old immigrant kid that um, has come to the States in a um, in a prototypical way that immigrants do, which is yeah. any way possible. Yeah. Um, and your mom, a single parent raising three boys, keeps house and home together for them somehow, and probably so. And you um, enter into a community of people that kind of buffer you then from gangs and from a, a, a thousand other ways that other people have to put food on the table in, um, in places in our city where there's not enough money. Yep. And 
you get really good at this thing called breakdancing, not yeah. just really good, but yeah. like have a coral becomes one of the top breaking crews in the entire planet. Yeah. So much so that when I got to know you and I Googled your name and have a coral, like I was, um, I, I fell down this rabbit hole of Google videos, watching your crew at um, Red Bull, watching your crew in France or yeah. in Poland or in Russia or in, El Sa- or in El Salvador, all over the world dancing. Yeah. And this yeah. is when you're between the age of what, 16 and 16 19? and 19, yeah. <laughs> so by 19 years old, I had been to 20 countries. Um, and, and and this is the, the thing that about subculture, the power of subculture, it allows you to to be yeah. a dreamer, yeah. right? And that's why people, a lot of people don't understand about the power of these subcultures of like, uh, uh, whether it's music, whether it's skateboarding, whether it's punk rock. I mean, it allows yeah. you to dream with yeah. a bunch of people that just want to be dreamers and they want to be accepted. That's why people join gangs. Yeah. You know, uh, people don't join gangs to be tough. People join gangs to be accepted to and to be loved and, and to belong. When you have never had someone say, hey, I love you. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to fight for you. That's, a, that's to, to you, that's all you're listening. That's mm. all you're hearing. You're not, you're not looking at Bloods and Crips. You're looking at family. Mm. And, and, and at this time, my, my breaking crew was basically everything I had. Um, I stayed writing. I, I, I kept writing while I was traveling with uh, my group and and I really got into writing. I, I really got into storytelling and I became the really like the voice of, of, of yeah. the group when it came to our stories and, and who we were. And uh, uh, I, I, I started traveling alone. I, I, I would go places and, and I would just talk to people. And I, I realized that I wasn't scared of humanity anymore. Huh. You know, before I had a fear of people. I had a fear of people that didn't look like me. You don't speak to people that don't look like you. You don't, you're not comfortable around people. And, and you know, I, I, I think I, I can build rapport with my students that I work with because I know exactly what their, what yeah. their perspective yeah. is. And yeah. it's hard to trust people. It's hard to trust someone that won't hire my mom. It's, it's hard to trust people that, that my mom works for them, right? Like right. it's it's never an equal thing for us. Um, in my house, there's three pictures. There's there's Jesus, there's a uh, Virgin Mary, and then there's Frida Kahlo, <laughs> right? The Holy Trinity, the Holy of, Trinity, yeah, yeah. of any uh, Latin family, right? <laughs> and, and you know, my mom never spoke about feminism. She never spoke about mm. you know uh, her dreams um, simply because she was. She had three jobs. She had to pay rent, you know. But for me, like that Frida Kahlo uh, print of I don't know what ninety nine cent story came from, but it, it represented her her dreams and 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 her like her love of art and 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 music and dance. Um, and it it really resonated with me, and I carried that with me in my heart. And I always looked at traveling as such a blessing. And who gets to do things like this? One of the themes that um, that comes up both in your writing, in your poetry, um, in your public speaking, and with your students that I see a lot is this um, this real honoring of the place that you're from um, that should not be muted. It should not um, sit in a shadow, but that the place you're from is the headwater of joy and pain and suffering and possibility. It's like, it's life. 
right? Um, and as I've gotten to know you and watch you interact with, I mean, because in, in so many ways, Marlon, you are a border crosser. You, you transcend um, 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 communities and people, and you're a connector at heart. And as I've watched you over these last um, five to six years, just the way you move in the world, you are constantly pulling people into themselves in a way that gives them honor. Yeah. Um, the first poem I ever heard you do uh, was a poem called Where I'm From. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm wondering... Um, would you do that? Yeah. So this is a this is actually one of my first poems, and and I call it "Where I'm From," and and uh, and this is basically to educate people about you know where I'm from. Where I'm from, we live life in summer. We speak in family tongues about family through neighbors' eyes. Our dialects change through ever-changing barrios, cuadras, calles, y casas ajenas. Where I'm from, la lechuza, el diablo, and la llorona all become curfews, and there is no talks of American birds and bees. Reputations follow you like 14-year-old backpacks on our 14-year-old soldiers. Where I'm from, education is like crazy as equality. Tree branches become a sign of disciplinary actions. Moms are mommies, tias are titis, grandpas are popos, fathers have always been gone. Oyeme, where I'm from. Music is our narrator, moving us like revolution once did. Young developing flowers shaking and stepping to beasts they do not understand yet. Perversion is an uncle not allowed near the kids, but is always welcomed home. Where I'm from, the dinner table is time of conferences of who needs to go get a job, who needs to go get some water, or who just needs to go. Sana sana culito, the rana's our doctor. Mosquitoes is always ignored for the immune system of our ancestors is too strong. Where I'm from, children carry sun like descriptive terms. Neck dirt necklaces tell you when it's time to go in, along with, oh yeah, chico, because you see where I'm from, Jesus is Jesucristo, and he lights up every mantle like American Christmases. Where I'm from, everyone is a Christian and has a Catholic neighbor. Love is what is allowed or how good a young couple is at sneaking around. Babies make babies, they make families close, and machetes even closer. Where I'm from, my grandmother is beautiful. Aunts and uncles are extended parents, and everyone has the right to beat your butt. Boom, doma. Where I'm from is purple, yellow, green, and gold, and it is beautiful. So. <laughs> I love that, dude. I'd I love to talk about um, the program of Iconoclast Artists yes. and spend um, some time talking about that because in many ways, um, you and I represent kind of an improbable friendship, yes. an improbable relationship. Yes. I mean, the city of Houston is set up in many ways, the world is set up in many ways for you and I never to meet. Yeah. Um, and if we were to meet, for it to be really transactional, yeah. you know, um, but not to have kind of... Uh, one a mutual friendship where there's kind of real intimacy and trust. Yeah. And then out of that also a real vision where you're leading um, in so many ways um, what the church is going to look like, um, what the church could look like if yeah. we were um, if we were obedient and surrendered enough. So I meet you through a mutual friend um, and um, and who encourages us to? He he calls me and says, "There's a there's a guy I know that has some crazy ideas. <laughs> would you please get him off my back? And would you go take him to lunch?" And that's that's yes. the introduction I had yes. to you. So if I had a dollar for every time someone <laughs> said that about me. Um, yeah, uh, you know uh, Charles Rotremel. Uh, has been a, a mentor of mine since I was like 15 years old. He was the first white man I've met huh. that I interacted with. Uh, he was 
he was a really good guy and ran an organization I, he, called Youth Advocates Youth back Advocates. in the day, which now is, is revision. revision. And, uh, right. and I called Charles and I was like, I'm like, I have this great idea. I want to, I want an old building in downtown Houston and I'm going to create the most amazing art school in the world. And he looked at me and he was like, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Nobody's going to go to this thing. You need to be in the schools. Mm. You need to be where the kids are. And I'm like, well, can you help me? He goes, oh, he goes, I'm not going to help you. He's like, but I'll connect you with someone that probably can. And then, then he, then now I met you. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I just think now yeah. it's all coming together. I yeah. wonder if, uh, if uh, Charles is trying to get me off his back I too, if so. he just stuck I, us together. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, when I went to meet you, it was, uh, for some reason, it was just like, yeah, this is going to happen. We sit down over a plate of tacos and you share this idea about some kind of crazy, um, uh, school program where yep. kids would be taught both poetry, creative writing, but through um, really their own lens of their life yes. and that it would be interactive. Yeah. And in the middle of that, you're talking about these things called community. Like you're not wanting just to do program delivery. You're yeah. wanting to create a whole community yeah. of kids within these schools. And yeah. um, in the middle of that, I just got hooked. And I remember, I remember walking away thinking, this is something this is this is something different. And if the church could come alongside yeah. and say, um, because you were living in these spaces. Yeah. You knew all you'd been working in schools, you knew all the teachers already, you'd been yeah. doing workshops for teachers and creative pedagogy and writing. And so um, what you were needing was just a, a partnership. Yeah. Right, you yeah. need someone that could help create some structure and um, some life around that. Yeah. Some, yeah. And so I remember walking away thinking, "Oh, maybe this is what it means to build bridges." Yeah. That you have somebody in a um, in a community that has all these resources, all these connections, all these friendships, mm -hmm. and you've got a church that's dying on the outside, trying to get in the game, but doing it in really uncoordinated ways. Mm -hmm. Could it be as easy as connecting two people and watching what happens? And it, um, I mean, not that it was easy, but that's yeah. what happened. Yeah, I, I think it was it was a it was a, a fun hard. Yeah, yeah. It was a fun <laughs> hard thing to do. I remember my first uh, my first meeting with a principal, which was uh, at uh, Sharpson High School and then at Lee High School, mm. and literally I was like, "Hey, I want to try out this new program, and give me the kids that are one foot out the door." And their faces lit up because, of course, we'll give you those kids, yeah, right. you know. And in the beginning, uh, sharing the where I'm from poem with my kids and, and telling them where I was from and what I've been through and, and, and how I write and, and where my stories come from or my poetry comes from, it lit up. It lit them up. Yeah. Because it was, it was, it was storytelling. Right. It was storytelling in places that storytelling doesn't exist, that poetry doesn't exist, right? And it's, it's, it's dreaming with me for one hour. You get to forget. You get to forget that, that sometimes you don't eat dinner at night. You get yeah. to forget that, you know, you come from an abusive home. You get to forget that you're failing every single class, that you only come to school once a week, and that's probably to eat. Yes. 
you know, and, and for this one class, it's not about grades. It's, it's not about, it's not about your dress code. It's not about anything. It's about you and your stories, where you come from and, and your dreams and your nightmares. And, and, uh, one of the coolest things that a kid ever uh, told me, he was like, you know, I was like, Hey man, I really want you to write about positive things. Like, can we do that? And then he goes, he goes, sir, there are no puppies and rainbows in my neighborhood. Mm. I feel comfortable writing this because this is what I live through. Yeah, yeah. And these kids have taught me so much simply because they're so honest and genuine. So all I can be is honest and right. genuine with mm-hmm. them. So, so the guts of the program started as um, a creative writing program. But I remember um, as we started, um, you being very adamant that what we where we wanted to be was in under-resourced or no-resource schools. Yes. And so um, you kind of had this idea that, um, that um, yes, prep and some other um, schools are, um, around the city had resources and they are doing a great job with yes. those resources. But you were really dedicated in saying that we wanted to be in schools, um, like you had said, where kids have not just one foot out, but there is a whole story that has already been written for them so that if these kids slip into what's been called the school to prison pipeline, yes. well, that's just normal yes. because these kids um, end up there, yeah. right? And so um, that's, I remember um, the first day meeting you, you being quite adamant saying, this is where I want to be located. I yeah. want to be in places where everybody else has given up on these kids. Yeah. So our first year, we started in um, uh, three schools. Yes. And uh, um, one, actually it was two, but two lockdown units. Yes. Um, And I remember that distinctly because we were showing up in class time, um, partnering with teachers um, that were really and probably there as well. I mean, these, some of these teachers that all the teachers that we've worked with and principals have just been amazing uh, and really I think they're called to this kind of life and, and, and work. And we've partnered with them in creating um, a, really an, an academic, what I'll call an academic writing program, which you have instantiated and call like this inspirational program. Yeah. So it's not an either or, but a both and. We've seen writing scores go up. We've seen community be built. And so our first year, we were meeting in these uh, three or four schools in the lockdown units. And you had this idea that um, at the end of the year, you wanted to pull together Yes. Um, uh, the best poetry out of the year, and you wanted to create a book out of it. Yes. Um, yeah, I got published very late. I got published like at 29. And I would always ask myself, man, if I would have been published like at 16, 17, mm-hmm. like where would my career be now? Right. Uh, and I, I was like, why not do that for the kids we work with? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I remember with this first idea when I told the students, I'm like, hey, we're going to publish a book. Uh, and a, res- a perfect response from one of my students was like, like a real book? <laughs> <laughs> that was their response. And it was, it was a great, but like, like, the, like there was so much to that response, right? Yes. Like a real book because, you know, we don't see ourselves like that. That is a funny line, but that is such a deep line. Yes. And I'm like, yes, a real yeah. book, a real poetry book, an anthology, using the word anthology to them and, and calling them writers and poets. It made them feel uncomfortable. And I told them, I'm going to keep calling you writers and poets until it doesn't feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's how you change bad habits, right? Like you keep doing it until it's not weird anymore. Yeah. Right. Um, I, 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 I tell my students, I love them. 
I tell them I love them. And if it's gonna feel weird, it's gonna feel weird until it doesn't feel weird, until mm-hmm. you can say it, until you can tell your brothers and sisters, I love you. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that, that we do in our classes that we try to connect. Because if you're gonna get anything out of my class, you're gonna get a group of people that are gonna follow you the whole year and they got your back. Yeah. Right? And so when I introduced the idea of this, this anthology, I was like, hey, listen, you guys are gonna have to write some really good poems. And they were like, we don't know how to do that. And I'm like, we're going to learn. In the beginning, we're going to write a lot of bad poetry, but at the end, we're all going to be writers and poets. And so I remember, man, I remember praying and just be like, please, God, let me just at least get 50 50 good poems that I can create this book. The first year, we got 700 entries. 700. Remember that? We were were drowning. We were drowning in poetry. Each student literally was turning in like 10 poems. Mm -hmm. They were just writing them and and submitting because they understood that I only had so many poets that I can feature. And they were just, oh my gosh, I want to make this book. And the kids at the lockdowns. Oh, they were. Through through their probation officers, through, through. through uh, their case managers, they were sending me poems, and mm-hmm. and that that humbled me so much yeah. because I I know that I was dreaming of this, but at the same time, like it was happening. Yeah, it was happening. Like, and it at, on the other side of that, um, I'm a local pastor, um, and beginning to wonder what does youth ministry look like now there's always going to be a need for um, uh, churches like Chapelwood to have really robust youth departments and yep. and uh, and student ministries which we do yep. which is affecting my children right yep. I mean it's um, it's invaluable um, that's only one part of the equation the other question is where do students live where do they live move and have their being yep. and so part of that was realizing that maybe youth groups and youth work um, needs to also be located in schools yep. and so for the church then to um, to tunnel towards right yep. because the the model that we have in the 21st century 2021st century is that um, if we build it and we have this kind of youth building then the friends will bring friends and we pull people into yep. um, the building and into the program which is very important yeah. well the other model is is that kids exist in these schools that may never darken the door of a church because they either don't have friends or because of the boundaries and of time and um, transportation or whatever boundaries there are mm-hmm. to come to that church. How does the church then show up in the places where these kids might never show up? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that was what I was wrestling with. And as you were creating this program on the inside of these schools, we began to really think through um, how does a church show up in these places as well? One of the ways that we did that was the anthology yep. that you had created and that we're, we were creating in these uh, schools. We had um, went to the Museum of Fine Arts and asked them if they would host the night that we released this book. Yes. And they were amazing. They said, of course. Of course. <laughs> and and to me, that was such a big deal because the Museum of Fine Arts I mean, going was nuts. the first place that inspired... They, they all went back to the Museum yeah. of Fine Arts. I was... When they said yes, I... I suddenly became that 14-year-old kid at the in the front of the Museum of Fine Arts, not knowing if I could step in there or not, yeah. or if people like me can be there. Yes. And, and so here, here we are invited into the Museum of Fine Arts, into their main gallery space, and they kind of just opened the, the doors wide open. Yes. And um, 
the idea was we we're going to sell this anthology and all the money from it was going to go to a scholarship yes. to really propel the dreams that had been awakened in these kids' lives. And yes. so we were kind of expecting maybe a hundred or so folks to show up to this Ho- thing. Ho- hopefully. Hoping. Yeah, yeah, hoping. <laughs> and you and I had paid folks, our yeah. friends, we <laughs> borrowed and, you know, yeah. under the threat of I gave of my friends ultimatums. <laughs> if you don't go, we're not friends anymore. You better show up. Well, and the, the, the night came and um, the first anthology in the Carolyn... Wise Law Building had over 400 people. Yeah. And um, I remember that night standing and um, just welcoming folks, and then you emceeing and welcoming the kids yeah. um, down the line, the 10 or 12 poets, and watching. Uh, one of the poets was a kid that had been homeless for two years, yep. and lived on the street and ate out of a trash can, and yeah. went to school, kept going to school, yeah. um, because it's the only place he could eat. Um, and another kid that was a Syrian refugee that had lived in a burned out car for two years, worked in a hospital mopping up blood, was uh, finally with his brother and a group of other 14-year-olds walked across Jordan, into Jordan from Syria, and was in a refugee camp until they found that his mother had been repatriated and given asylum in Houston, and he was put on a plane, and two days later was in your class. Yeah. yeah, I, uh, yeah, this kid was literally learning English through Google Translate <laughs> while he was in class. Uh, his first poem was about his accent, and I remember this was his first completed work as an American. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was so proud of this poem, and just to to get an excerpt from it is his accent is like a baby trying to communicate with a grown up world, a hungry boy who spits and eats the alphabet, mm-hmm. a picture into his first street. This is a kid who cannot communicate at a McDonald's to order a meal, but he just created this poem with these words that just flow like water. Yes. And I, when I first heard it and I realized that this is what we are supposed to be doing. Yeah. And this kid followed, we followed this kid from ninth grade all the way to 12 and saw him graduate. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that was the impact part that we were talking about yeah. over some tacos five years ago. Yeah, like to right. watch these kids graduate, to follow them, for them to to email me poetry, for them to not only email me poetry, but also, hey, where where do I go to get my license? Right. Like, hey, how do I get food stamps? Like, hey, can you connect me with some yeah. housing? Yes. It's amazing. So with the money that came from the sale of these books, um, kids have gone to college. We have created and helped create um, a catering company for um, a young man and his parents that uh, we've been able to g- give out uh, certificates or help pay for certificates for welding. We've sent kids to camp in the summer. Uh, basically, we said to the kids in our program, this is your money. What do you want to do with it? This is a social entrepreneur venture. This is what you created yeah. and what your sweat equity actually created in the world. Yeah. And people are purchasing this what this is yours what do you want to do with it yeah. so let me let me kind of fast forward a bit so the the program starts both in this partnership with the local church and with you this kind of local writer and activist and uh, a person that's within the school systems advocating for change uh, uh, both within the system and in connecting with these students we start with three or four schools the first year in a lockdown unit and a and a book yes um 
Um, if we fast forward it now to our sixth year, we're in 19 schools. Yes. We in have Houston. In Houston. <laughs> and in uh, five different schools in Galveston. We're in two different lockdowns, and we are in Wharton, Texas. And Aldine and in Cypher. And Cypher, yeah. yeah. So out of those 19 schools, we. Um, now have teaching fellows that are connected to the program as well. We have connected with both um, teachers and poets. We be uh, we because of uh, kind of reading through the first kind of volume of poetry. These kids were talking about really kind of many times trauma experiences yes. uh, of their past and of their present. And so we created a social and emo- emotional learning program that kind of walks alongside of the writing program yes. um, as well uh, now. And um, we're in the midst of developing an app that where all of our curriculum will sit on it uh, and teachers will have access to the living curriculum uh, that is on the app. And we've yes. just entered into a partnership with the, uh, with the university of Houston Graduate College of Social Work to do research with this hidden population of kids that uh, that um, that we're now in community with, and it's amazing to me to think about five years on um, that over a plate of tacos and yeah. your dream, yeah. uh, what God has done to really draw the church into places that it doesn't it cares about but doesn't know how to get to does that make sense yeah and a lot of times it's easier for us to go to um, a Mexico mission trip yeah. than it is to go to the east end yes right and I think that what you've helped show me is that it's in the east end where I can have sustained connection and my life can be transformed day in and day out because yeah. of these relationships that we're now in yeah um, the possibility of that is just amazing. But at Chapelwood, Iconoclast Artists is a, uh, really is a new ministry and a new program. Um, and one of the ways that folks can, uh, I think, be introduced to what we're doing is, uh, is happening on April 9th. April 9th um, uh, at Chapelwood, we'll have what's called Iconoclast Sessions. We will bring two poets in. Uh, I think one of those poets is going to be you, Marlon, yes. which I'm totally excited about. And we'll have a bunch of students, of our students that will be here as well. Yes. Students that would never darken the door of this church normally yes. will be here. And our student ministry is collaborating with us uh, to provide kind of this place of radical hospitality. And we just think, um, Chapel just thinks that through the audacity of of love and uh, the presence of God that we can bridge divides and we can uh, really kind of nurture um, improbable friendships in this world. So we've got that in April. Um, yes. Uh, and then in May. Uh, we May 7th. May 7th at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. at the Museum of Fine Arts. Is our book release. Yes. And we will release two books of poetry for our fifth volume. Uh, one will be in English and one will be in Spanish yes. with some Jason. With some Quiche, some Quechua. And uh, yeah, so we're super excited and uh, we welcome everyone to come and come meet our program and come and come get involved. Come see a class. Our doors are always open. We invite people to come see what we're doing all the time. You can go to iconoclastartist.org and uh, you can connect with us that way. And uh, yeah, so whatever you're interested in, in, on Instagram, we are at iconoclastartists. And then on Facebook, we're at iconoclastsessions. I'm Matt Russell. I am Marlon Lizama. And this is Pod Have Mercy.